Paul Zimmerman, welcome to Breakfast with Boxy. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to have you here <laughs> on this lovely day. I know, it's, it's fantastic. I'm so happy it's cooled down a bit. Oh it was hot this weekend. Scorcher. We do have a fan strategically pointed over there that could help us. All right, that's fine. Um, Paul, uh, I'm not sure where to begin with you. You're a man of many hats, many talents. Uh, you're an activist in our community. Um, initially, I got to know you through Designing Hong Kong, which yep. is a wonderful platform, and we'll talk about that. And more recently, I've got to know you as the councillor for the Southern District. Um, but I know you're involved with many more things um, on many levels. Um, but perhaps let's start with a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, I know you're Dutch and raised in Holland. Born in Rotterdam, yeah, yeah. in Holland. Almost 60 years ago. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost. When's your birthday? November, uh, this year. Are you Sag? It's my. It's my. Scorpio. Oh, I'm a Scorpio. Nice. So this is my year, year of the dark, and it's Scorpion. Say, 8th of November. I'll pass the mark. <laughs> Daylight begins at 60 anyway. Is it? Oh, okay. Well, I'm. Um, 60 is a new 40. I'm happy. No, it's good. And uh, yeah, I came out. It's. it's 1984, so um, 34 years. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. And you came for a purpose, on a mission? No, I, I, I had some experience with Asia because my family had been buying textiles here. And I came once in 1977 on a buying trip uh, with the family or with my dad. And he went into China. Um, and I spent time here in Hong Kong and in Macau. You went also went to Taiwan and other places to Early buy textiles. 80s. This is all in 1977. That was 77. my first time I was out here. So I had it in my head to come back after I finished my study. And I also had a good reason. I mean, uh, if I'd stayed in Holland, I had to do one and a half year drinking beers in the army because there was not much going on in the army at that time. And there was a draft and um, um, so I didn't think it was for me, it was good to stay another one and a half year doing nothing. So I, I had a good reason to come out of here and I got a job here and I never left. Amazing. What was your first job here? I had a job with a bank for three months to find out that I was not a banker. No. I ended up working for a computer company that was all startup at that time. So I um, worked for them for a period of time and then I went to a PR company handling computer clients. So. Com company names at that time is IBM and uh, Ashton Tate, Memorex, Telex, all kind of names that people don't know much about these yeah. days. Um, and um, from there on, I started my own company doing um, uh, production work and, and PR work, which I ran till um, 1998. Um, after I sold it then to a company that was doing events, so we, we expanded the package from doing design and communication work to also include events. Um, and I ran that until 2001 or so, and that's when I kind of like looked up and decided, am I going to stay here or not? You know, you're sold up, finished up. Um, and I decided to stay. I looked at Holland, it's very boring, very cold, 400 kilometers of traffic jam every day. So I didn't particularly like that. Uh, when Australia, I looked there, but beautiful, but boring. Then I lived for half a year in Shanghai, fantastic. Couldn't see my kids there. Um, and so did a circle and came around and decided that Hong Kong was home. 
um, and then um, really rooted here myself with trying to get some new work. Ended up working for uh, Jepson um, and uh, did a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions in the travel business and uh, set up their car, and the automotive for uh, Aston Martin that they still run here. Yeah. Um, but alongside, I was no longer as interested in the commercial world and um, I got involved doing more uh, NGO work. And it started off with designing Hong Kong Harbor District. So what was the turning point to go from a businessman to realizing that you want to do designing work for the community? Was actually, there were two points probably in that one. In around 2001, 2002, when I had sold up and looked around the world, and you kind of go, what do I do next in my life? I had a conversation with somebody who, goes, who told me, the first part of your life you learn, the second part of your life you earn, and the third part of your life you serve. And I was, serve? What do you mean? I had done the, the, the learning and earning. Right. Never really thought about serving, because right. yeah. you, know, you had your head down working hard and not thought about it. So that's when I started thinking about the whole concept of getting involved in an NGO, starting helping out, and that project became Designing Hong Kong Harbour District, was the first one. Um, and, then it's, and then it was a transition that was slowly, it was granted gradual, as I got more and more deeper involved in Designing Hong Kong, and it was really rewarding to be involved with all these projects, and it became more political because it was land related. So what year was this now? So now it's so from the transition then from 2002 to about 2010. So in 2010, I, um, you know, started to get really in, uh, I gave up commercial work entirely and, and became 100% involved with politics and, and NGO work. And I got elected in, in the Southern District Council in 2010. Um, and then in 2012, I gave up my passport and became um, a Chinese citizen. That's an amazing thing to do, and I want to touch on that as well. Um, but as you've touched on it, so you relinquished your European passport, mm. and now you are a full Chinese citizen. Yeah. That's an amazing thing to do. I mean, there's well, just it, a handful of people in Hong Kong that I'm aware of who've done that. Uh, well, some people, some of my friends would call it, ask me whether I was stupid, and every time something goes wrong in in, in this part of the world, and they look at me and go like, is that I told you so. Uh, but you know, if you're, if, uh, I, got, I got more and more involved in politics, and that felt really awkward being involved in politics and yeah. speak up for issues in the city beyond this kind of the livability of the city uh, in, in political affairs and so on, without being a local, without being 100% rooted here. Yes. Because all of you know, the issues that we're all facing in Hong Kong uh, and especially those who don't have a, a set of travel papers that gives them the freedom to leave all the time. Um, it's, so what's going to happen with the future of Hong Kong? And that's the future of China. So um, if you speak on those issues, it feels a bit silly yeah. to be not be yeah. uh, local. You know, if you don't, I don't feel... You don't look Chinese. Yeah, yeah, so what do you have a right and speak up on these issues? So, uh, so kind of like... I'd made Hong Kong my home in 2002 and the, stop, the step in 2012 to also give up my passport to become Chinese is a, was a relatively small step. It's very admirable Paul, it really truly is because you're committing on a, on a much deeper level than just living here and you know operating a business or buying property. It's a much, it's, it's, for me I really admire that. It's, it's going beyond the beyond that you are committed to Hong Kong to make a difference. 
Yeah, it's my home. It's, it's your home. Yeah. I've I've no, no other home. I Yeah, you've taken um, it a step deeper. You know, I mean, Holland is there and I go on Holland and I love to go on holiday. I love to see my mother. I love to cook her meals and hang out and go to the beach with her. Uh, my brother still lives there um, and he pops up if I go and see my mother. Uh, the rest of my family is in other parts of the world. So two of my siblings are in the States. One of them is in Switzerland and I'm here. So we kind of spread all over. So there is, in that sense, my roots have kind of um, spread all over rather than it's just yeah. Holland. So Holland is not necessarily home. And Holland is not uh, is a nice place in the summer. I love yeah. going to Amsterdam and hang out and see my mates for a few for a few weeks. Yeah. But it's not a. It, it's cold. It can be yeah. measurable. We got. I, we, I think we got twenty thousand different words for rain in Holland. So. <laughs> the Dutch and the English are quite similar. Aren't they? Yeah, very similar. Um, that's amazing. So when you travel now, you travel on a Hong Kong passport or a China passport. So I got a Hong Kong passport. And this is quite funny because in, in Holland, when I arrive, uh, I usually go into the Dutch queue and I got my Dutch name and I speak Dutch and I'll say good morning, goeiemorgen, and then I'll give him my Chinese passport and he goes like, where's the other one? And I'll say, I had to turn it in, otherwise yeah. it doesn't work. And he, and he kind of stamps it and puts me through and greets me in Dutch. Um, but when I landed in Moscow, uh, I took a long time for the immigration officer to be convinced that my passport was real. Uh, when checking and double checking and so on. So yeah, you get some questions here and there, but otherwise it, it's not a problem. And uh, yeah, that your visa-free access to, I don't know how many countries, it's a very so flexible it's, it's, passport. If you wanted to go to Europe, it's visa-free? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, it's not an issue. Amazing, I want to cheers you to that. All right. right. <laughs> Mm. Okay, and then the other thing that I first got to know you for is, is designing Hong Kong. Mm. And I've really admired that platform. It's an NGO, right? Yeah. I've really admired that platform because it touches on something we lack in Hong Kong. Intelligent design, intelligent urban design that serves the community. And I've attended some of your earlier talks and uh, I subscribe to your newsletter and I, I, I'm in the know of what, what's moving and I, I find you're providing a service that's really needed in this city, really needed. But it's fun, it's also fun to do because um, it's daily life and touches everybody and um, and you can help people, really help people all the time because there are issues everywhere all the time in the environment that people care about. And you can, because we've done it now so long, uh, the best help you can give people is to get them to understand the process of decision making and, and how you get to, a, how, how you got to the point that they are, whatever the development is in their area and how they could possibly move forward, how you can make a change where the points of intervention are. So you can really help people. So we get pulled into, you know, and, and people have got issues in Mount Shan, people got issues in Chakoling, people got issues in Chun Moon, people got issues in Stanley. I mean, you know, people will call you in um, and then you can really advise them on the process and how things are going and how they could possibly make a change. Um, and then try to also step away from people that are leaning on you because they'll, what you tend to do it for them and you go like no 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 we'll help you to do it yourself and then out of that um, people learn 
and people then feel empowered and then they become leaders in their own area for, the, for those kind of urban and environmental issues. And then you see them grow, you see the voices coming back. Um, uh, I, I know you have Ketty Law here before. Mm. Um, and that was around the, uh, the street market. So you'd, she'd worked on Staunton Street issues and then it became about the central street market, Graham Street area. And then at some stage it was like, who's gonna lead this? They're all yeah. went into Kenny, get you, you local, you gotta do this. Yeah. You're gonna push it. And now she's grown into a leading voice and it's fantastic. And um, we now see the same happening in Kennedy Town. There is a person who's becoming more and more a leader there. And we see that in Chuck Holing, where Freddie is becoming more and more of a leader. He learns the issue, starts to lead the community and builds it up. So it's, um, it's, it helps, it empowers people. It's empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And so we don't have to be in front. You know yeah. what I mean? We're happy to be yeah. just helping and let people. So guide, we, guide people to navigate the uh, laws and regulations as well, right? Yeah, and also connect with other people. So a lot what we do is uh, just other than let them understand the processes, is connect with other people, networks, yeah. and then uh, and then see people get together, and then we can slowly disappear. We we're very small, um, so it's all about motivating and supporting and enabling, uh, rather than try to run in front of it. Yes. It doesn't have to be us, rather not. <laughs> yeah. Rather more voices out there that yeah. are empowered to do their own thing. And of course as a district councillor now, you probably have less time for designing Hong Kong, or do you strike a good balance? It's like a good balance, uh, you know, because Pok Falam as a constituency has uh, primarily environmental issues to deal with and transport issues. Whereas maybe uh, you know, other district councillors, they have more social welfare issues to deal with if they're in a poor neighborhood, a lot of elderly people, with a lot of issues that need to be resolved. I don't have that in Park yeah. We have a, a, the average income is uh, for a household is above $100,000 a month. You know, it's, 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 it's a demographic. very demo, different demographic. So it's very much a fire. And that's the environmental issues are very close to what we do designing Hong Kong. So it fits hand in glove, so it kind of flows into each other so easily. Um, now, so is, is Pok Fulham the largest expat community in Hong Kong? Uh, by percentage um, of uh, non-Hong Kong um, residents, I yeah probably pretty. I mean, Stanley will be uh, up there too, but as a const as a whole constituency. Uh, yeah, I would say it's yeah. quite high up yeah. there in terms of, on, on average, yeah. in terms of yeah. non-Chinese, non-Hong Kong passport holders yeah. or, or people with at least with a dual nationality, you know, yeah. so yeah, it's quite international. It actually, I've seen some reports done by Hong Kong U where they looked at the average number the, on the languages, they looked at languages. And so they had, a, I think on average we have more Russian speakers than anywhere in Hong Kong. We have more German speakers. <laughs> No, I don't think we beat the French-speaking percentage uh, that is in Stanley, but um, so we, on a lot of languages we right. have we have um, a higher United percentage. Nations of Hong Kong. It is a bit United Nations of yeah. Hong Kong, yeah, but not entirely because the demographics is yes. quite selective. It's yeah. it's uh, it's not a, as mixed in terms of income levels. And as a district councillor, do you have to run every two years? Every four years. Every four years. Okay. So I've been elected now three times. Amazing. Is there a limit? No, I mean, 
until you go nutty and people don't vote for you anymore, I guess, until you lose it. Um, no, there's no limit. Uh, you can run as, as long as people think you do a good job yeah. and they keep giving you the vote. I'm 65% at the moment, so... Amazing. That's up there, isn't it? Like, 65% is good. There, There's it? a good yeah. solid uh, support, yeah. yeah. And I've um, got so many questions for you. What is the project that you're most proud of as a district councillor and as a Designing Hong Kong founder? As a district councillor, uh, in about two years, I think, um, there will be a, um, a walking route signposted from Kennedy Town MTR station all the way to Stanley Main Beach. <laughs> and it's, you know, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's very simple. It's but a trail, and, is it? It's a tr it's, it's, it takes you all different type of uh, pedestrian footways. Uh, some of it close to the water, more like a trail. Some of it's just the footpath along the road, but it, it, it takes you there. Um, and the idea is that then people will start demanding for that uh, route to be put closer to the waterfront. And there is a few areas where with some simple but not cheap infrastructure, um, it could be further made, to, made closer to the waterfront. There is an, an area from Sandy Bay to, to Telegraph Bay that requires a, kind of like an elevated footway over the water to be built. It's expensive, yes. um, but the demand from the public has to be there before they're going to yes. commit those funds. It's simple to do, but it's much. attractive too. Oh, once it's there, it's fantastic. Over Waterfall Bay Beautiful. will be uh, the next, and that but there's still somewhere in the pipeline, but it, it could get to a point that it is too expensive for the um, the category of projects that it sits in now, and then it goes to another category, then the electrical approval, and then so then you need political support. You're confident you're going to see this one through. Well, as the, the when the as long as the footpath marking is there, then the, the public demand will be there, growing for these shortcuts to be built. Yeah. And then in the end, you'll have a fantastic walking route. Which is great for elderly people as well, because people who may not be using the country park as much because they find this, the, the inclines too challenging, then this one, except for one section in South Bay when you go up to Chunum Kok to go down again, that's the only section that will have a, 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 a significant gradient, but uh, everything else is pretty, uh, is pretty flat. So that ETA about two years, you reckon? Well, I think ETA for two years for all the signage to be in place and then however long it takes to get the shortcuts uh, to be done. Yeah. So once you've done that, then the next one is to create the walkway all around Victoria Harbour. Well, the Victoria Harbour one is in progress. And yes. then we started with that in 2003 or uh, 2002. That's where you first started? I That's design, yeah, because yeah. it was not designing Hong Kong, it was designing Hong Kong Harbour District. I remember that. Uh, we dropped the word Harbour District because we started getting involved with so many other uh, urban issues. Yeah. So yeah, the, the other uh, significant... Uh, right now, we, I think one of the, the one that excites me a lot is a project where we have um, the beverage manufacturers, uh, the waste guys and the green groups in one working group 
discussing how we can reduce waste from our drinking behavior and I'm talking packaged beverages right. uh, so not coming to your coffee shop right. um, the one of service bottle soft drinks exactly so try and that's and that's 50 percent of that is water by the way mm. all these plastic uh, water bottles and trying to figure out a way of uh, changing that government is also looking at it and they're looking at some kind of deposit scheme on the plastic bottles so we hope and we, we, we're trying to do this and then coincide at some stage to come up with proposals of how to reduce our waste from drinking, which is five million bottles a day. I mean, it's, uh, it's huge. Five million bottles a day in Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. So trying to figure out ways to reduce that. Of course, the, the number one is bring your own bottle yeah. and, and refill. Yeah. So we need refill stations. Um, and industries in this group, so it's not just green groups, it's industry uh, that's well as well there. And they're supporting the recommendation of, you know, go and do refill. So, I mean, they would give up yeah. revenue there. But they're quite confident that people will want to drink you know, beautiful fermented teas or uh, uh, sweet drinks or power drinks or, you know, those people have it. Yeah. And, and you, you don't want to take away consumer choice. Um, but it's just, and so what kind of packaging do you go for? Do you yeah. have eco packs? Do you do deposits? Do you do both? A combination of both, I think. Yeah. Change takes a while, doesn't it? But if there was a deposit, even on your water plastic bottle, a lot of people would return it. Totally. The moment there is a monetary incentive in this town and everything is just a few pennies, it will return. And Singapore discovered that a long time ago, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. And, and, it works. Uh, it works. And, and so the, the monetary incentive has got to be there. But if we now see what government has done with the glass, they charge the distributor or the producer uh, for the glass bottle that is not returned. Um, so if it's not a, a bottle that has a deposit scheme, so Coca-Cola bottles that go through the restaurant have a deposit scheme. Uh, there is some dairy farm milk bottles that have a deposit scheme, but all the other ones don't. So they, uh, they all these manufacturers that are, and distributors that have these drinks and glass bottles that I have no deposit scheme, they gotta pay. But that money just goes to government. It doesn't go to, it doesn't come back to the consumer that returns the bottle. Right. So that's not very effective. Right. It's just kind of like a tax, increasing the cost price of the drink. Yeah. But the tax is not high enough to kind of stop people from buying the glass bottles. Plastic bag leaving. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a bit, it's not the right way. Um, you've got to make sure that uh, you get a monetary incentive for people to act to put it back to scavengers that they can pick it up yeah. from the street and get some money for it. Yeah. Fantastic, we'll pick it up. Yeah. It will be taken out of the environment yeah, very absolutely. quickly. I remember seeing those um, machines in, in the States and Europe where you put in your aluminum cans or your plastic bottles and it gives you cash. Yeah, or, or your octopus car gives you your money back or One something like that. But the, we, we're looking at that too. The issue in Hong Kong is space. The cost of space in the urban environment is very high. So in Europe, there's always a backyard of the shops that where you can yeah. stick something. Uh, and this takes quite a bit of space because you crush the bottle, there's liquid in there, you got a drip tray, you got to keep the ones that have been crushed. Yeah. I mean, all in all, you start talking about quite a bit of infrastructure and space. And if you want to have that for 7 million people at a in a convenient location. Sure. 
you didn't come out a lot of them. Requires a bit of engineering and designing. Yeah, in space, space locations space, yeah. yeah so that needs so the reverse they call them the reverse vending machines um, that is part of that process of thinking where where can we place them and who's going to pay for that for space Understood. and manage it well right now with mana um, as, as you probably know we've, we've never used plastic from day one and we started with plant plastic because we couldn't find another alternative now we're moving away from plant plastic and we're moving more towards glass. Mm. So, good news is, just recently, Baguio, who contracted by the government, are picking up all the glass for free, and they're delivering it to government compounds where it's being crushed. That's right. And made into bricks and tiles. Ah, uh, that's the so one where that's where that's that's not true. That's not true. Yes. That's not true. So what they do, they crush it and they turn into little chips and it's basically being crushed to sand, sand again, yeah. or raw sand yeah. and it's been used for landfill. So we're a little bit disappointed with that because uh, we would hope that the glass will be used to make products that have a higher value than sand. Sand You're making bricks. Um, not really. It's sand and they use it for landfill. But at least, you know, otherwise they buy this sand in China, yeah. so it's, it yeah. still has some value. Yes. It's, it's turned into something that has value. But if, it, if it's being used, if it's being used as a raw material and then into an industry that makes, say, bricks, yeah. um, then that brick will have a greater value. But you're only going to get there at a certain threshold. And so we need government to at some stage fund uh, uh, the factories are going to make it, or a factory is going to make it, and help it to get to 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 a production level where it becomes economically viable, so that yeah. then the government can withdraw its subsidy. Yeah. But it needs that startup subsidy yeah. until the volume is there. Yeah. So anyway, but that is it's just another step forward. It's funny because we only received this new information yesterday that our glass bottles will be turned into bricks and tiles. This information came to us yesterday and we all started clapping and jumping up and down in the office. Yeah, we got that from Baggio. Correct. Yeah, well, Baggio is... So the good thing is that Baggio is now picking up for free. But yes. before you had to pay recycles or any of the other guys to, to pick it up. Yeah, and so now if Baggio picks it up for free, that, that's good progress. Um, and then... So then it turned, to be, it turned to sand for landfill. At some stage, the volume is there to do something better with the sand that has more value. Yes. So that because you want the value to be um, recognized, sure. it, it's got to be a resource, and then you're going to make sure that that money of the end product somehow trickles down into the back to you or to the scavengers or, any, or the waste collectors and anybody that needs to go on the, all the handling. Added value, right? Yeah, yeah but it, it's got to incentivize people to do the hard work. Okay. So, yeah. I'm going to look into that a bit more because we are switching more to glass. Um, no, it's good, do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's any, then, any waste that gets out of the waste stream. Hence, we put out this petition to the government to say, please do something about plant plastic because it is a good alternative, but it needs to be composted. And if it's composted, it's not toxic. Um, so we're doing that, but at the same time as we put out the petition, we move or moving away from plant plastic altogether. So now we're dependent more on paper. Mm. And glass, yeah, and compost. But you're you've been ahead of the curve, so I, I think we, you know, I got and actually it started through the 
the district council work because we started to have a lot of waste on the shores of Park Fulham and then we started to look where it come from. Then we went to Aberdeen and we went to fish for trash there and after four or five times we had a real analysis of what's in the water. It's the big white styrofoam box, it's the plastic bottles and there is the one-off servings noodles yeah cutlery so the the the, the 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 noodle bowl and the and the and the lunch box so that's what you find the bit white box you need an international solution so wwf is working on that globally to see what the alternative is and what can be promoted you can't just solve that in hong kong but at least we got the fish market to be operating cleaner so that fewer boxes end up in the water so that's done then the plastic bottles, we're now working with the working group. And the third one is kind of this one-off serving containers. Now you've already gone to palm plastic and now you're kind of trying to move on further, you, you try to minimize the amount of waste. But if you look in Hong Kong, and the last election, I'm standing, standing outside buildings at lunchtime to talk to people that go in and out for the election. And I noticed that people come outside, 10 minutes later they come back, a plastic bag, lunchbox and styrofoam, noodle cup and styrofoam, a drink with a plastic cover and a straw. And it's not one person. It's the entire building yeah. that comes back. And these are educated people. These are educated people. And they do that every day. Yeah. Um, and the amount of waste that is generated by all these one-off services, is, and that is a Hong, there is a Hong Kong problem, there is a Hong Kong solution. You don't have to worry what happens in the rest of the world. You can just ban in Hong Kong and yeah. say no styrofoam yeah. for one of them. Yeah. And then people go like, so what are the solutions? Well, that could be plant-based. Or we can go to other, you know, like yeah. as, as you said, you know, this is this is this holding is up well. This is holding up well. I mean, I've had water in here in this yeah. paper cap and yeah. it's still completely yeah. certainly softens a little bit and that's an hour almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. So We've got to get the government to mandate that. We've got to get the government to say, sorry, no more. <laughs> in Chinese medicine, you can use that as an analogy, right? You go to the doctor, you say you've got a rash on your skin or you've got a cold or whatever. The doctor will go towards the cause, not address the symptoms, right? So in Hong Kong, as you said, this is a Hong Kong solution. Ban styrofoam. Ban single-use plastic. Hmm. then you've addressed the root cause. And as for the symptoms, well, then there are solutions, alternatives. Maybe we use plant plastic, maybe we use um, recycled paper, you know. But we do need to go straight to the, to the root, and that's people's consumption habits. Yeah. And I've often wondered why our government doesn't subsidize the recycling industries. Just subsidize them, help them become more efficient. I think they are starting to recognize that now. We now see subsidies coming in. We now see subsidies coming in for collection. We now see subsidies coming in for the processing plants. See, we now, I think government is now recognizing that they can't just leave it up to the private market, but they've done it for too long. They were subsidized. 20 years ago. Well, they've been subsidizing waste handling. I mean, it's government contractors picking up. It's government built landfills. Yeah. I mean, it's all government paid yeah. our waste handling. Yeah. But when it comes to the recycling, they went like, oh, private sector. Well, that doesn't work that doesn't way. Doesn't make sense. No. Doesn't make sense. Because this benefits everyone. And it benefits the community. Right? And it's too expensive too. You know, you have 
guys to pick up the waste and you have to get the guys to pick up the bottles and the guys to pick up the plastic and it, you know like it's all trucks running around it's all additional cost and the value at, at these startup volumes especially is just not enough to for these companies to survive so we see them struggling but I, I think that we now we have passed the tipping point government is realizing it and they are now starting to invest in it but it's still it's still not wholeheartedly it's still not realizing that in this city what you need to resolve is the logistics yes. because people don't have space in the kitchen they don't have space on the floor in the building they have little space in their districts so you have to address the logistics you've got to be able to move it because the moment you separate you have different piles of for the different materials and those that's more space instead of one it becomes more space and not only that maybe the food waste goes twice a day but maybe the glass bottles sit there for the whole week before so everything has then a different timing for movement so that stockpiling that needs to take place to be uh, placed for it to become um, uh, sustainable and, and, and economically viable you need you need areas to do that and if you don't have that it's not going to happen because then the most economic is just chuck it out and burn it yeah. or landfill it so they have to really get their head around it and they can't be nice about it I mean they they wanted to have these green stations in different districts, but the moment people hear, oh, waste, recycling in my district, not in my backyard, not in my backyard. and you're just going to say, sorry, um, we're just going to do it. Yeah. And, you know, you have to be kept ballsy about that and just uh, and put your foot down as government and say, sorry, we've got to do it. Mm. That's it. And people will soon accept, you know. Government hopes that once they do the municipal waste charging that... Yeah. Uh, and then tell me, Paul, as a, you, you mentioned what you were most proud of as a district councillor. What are you most proud of as an NGO designing Hong Kong? Which project sticks out over the years? Well, the projects that stick out is the one that we started with, like Harbourfront um, and all the issues that we did. But the one that I'm always most proud of is when I've seen people that got involved you see them individually or directly or themselves or as groups taken on, making efforts and uh, be self-motivated and self-organized. And when I see that happening, yeah, when I see that happening, then I have a smile. Yeah. And then I, you know, remember the first time we met the person and you see them doing it themselves. You go, ah, oh, nice. All those seeds you were sowing yeah. over the years suddenly started to sprout. And then they're becoming shrubs and then they're becoming trees and then they're self-seeding. Yes. And that's how it's spreading, which brings us on to something that I'm very passionate about and have been talking about in Hong Kong now for many, many years. And that is the, the change that humanity is going through. We seem to be shifting from a materialism paradigm worldview into more of a holistic consciousness worldview. Are you seeing much of that change in the circles you move in? And well, especially in the circles that, you know, people that are activists and people that stick their hands out and speak up and do something and put their hands around it are, it's a self-selecting group of people that are motivated and, uh, f and not for monetary reasons. You know, they do that because they know it makes sense and it is required for, this, for the world, for the city to, to be sustainable for their families, for their kids. Um, 
So yeah, yeah, we definitely see it around it. So the question is not what we see around us because that it is a self-selecting group. It is like, do we see an outside that? Do we see more people get involved? And I think overall you do. I think that overall you see more people being concerned and you see that the message is spreading. You still see very poor behavior and selfish behavior and the bus driver who has his lunch and puts a styrofoam package in a plastic bag right next to his bus and then drives off. The taxi driver who chucks his Vitasoy bottle with his urine out of the window and down the slope. I mean, of course you see that behavior, you see really bad behavior. But overall, overall, I think, you know, from where we were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, things are moving ahead and people becoming more conscious. Children, the best fun, kids. You can always ask by kids for schools, go and talk to you. And I never say no because it's the most inspiring. And the younger they are, the more inspiring because they, they're asking questions and they're motivated. You notice the difference when you're speaking to seven, eight, nine-year-old young kids. You ask a question, they all put up their hands. Yeah. But when you get to teenagers who are 13, 14, 15, you ask a question and they will go. Oh, they're so self-conscious. Oh, they, they don't want to. Yeah. And, you get to, and then you go to university and they're asleep on looking at their yeah. iPhone. Yeah, exactly. So I love primary school conversations. They're the fun. Like you, I love talking to the younger yeah. ones. You know? Me, me, me. So, okay, what's the answer? And they go, I don't know. Yeah. Why did you put up your hands? Because they're engaging. They're and they're all laughing and they're all getting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been doing a lot of school talks recently, um, from the very young to up to university. So you don't say no when never you get asked? No. Never say no. Yeah. And I don't charge, it's, it's, it's yeah, a service, yeah. right? Um, and it's beautiful. And it, 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 it's lovely. And I, I like to hand out um, gifts, prizes. So, okay, kids, who can guess how many, you know, coffee cups we throw away every day in the world? Uh -huh. You know, and then obviously gets them thinking and and then at some stage somebody's going to guess it you know and then they get the t-shirt or the prize and they love it you know the moment you walk into the room and say okay i'm going to be handing out prizes yeah i just pulled out a i'd love to show it to you but it's inside a brochure that was put out by the government, I think circa 2008, about the overall design and renovation of Central. Um, it showed the Central Police Station, mm. so the PMQ. Conserving Central. Conserving Central. And I, I fished it out from my drawer uh, over the weekend, and I looked at it, and I'm like, wow, a lot of this has come to pass. Yes. It's beautiful. Huh? Um, and, you know, CPS is opening soon. And yeah, they call it Taekwun. Yes, a big station, right? Yeah, yeah, big building, big house, or yeah, yeah, Taekwun. Yeah. Dai, big. So when I tell the taxi driver the old police station, Central Police, is huh? But if you say Taekwun, he's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's brilliant. Um, we actually tried to get into the Central Police Station. For two years, the Hong Kong Jockey Club made us submit plans and renderings and finances and corporate structures. And we, we submitted a portfolio this thick to try and open, you know, a conscious community inside Central Police Station. And I don't think they understood us from Adam. I don't think they got their head around it. And 
So in the end, they end up taking the big groups, the big names, when initially they said, it's for the community, it's got to be cultural, it's got to be by Hong Kong, it's got to be from Hong Kong. Mm. So really, really let down with that one. But no grudges, you know, that's come to pass now. Well, you're not the only one. I mean, uh, who else got uh, Michelle uh, Michelle Garneau, uh, Michelle from Amateur Fringe before? I mean, she uh, down, right? no, she stepped away from it in the end because she just, um, uh, from what I understood, is that she got so tired by uh, down by the process yeah. that she uh, she stepped away, gave up on it. She said we no didn't. more. We were confident we were going to get in, and uh, all we got was a, a note saying, "Sorry, you've been rejected." It's like, wait a minute, we've just spent a fortune and two years of our lives trying to get in. Okay, maybe we're not good enough, fine. But then when we found out who got in, I'm not going to mention names. You're like, you've been lying to us. This is not cultural, this is not about Hong Kong, this is not for Hong Kong, this doesn't benefit the community. What have you done? Mm. So, because you know, I, I campaigned to try and get Central Police Station to become something for the community. Like I'm sure you did. And, and look at this. There's hmm. the central police station, oh. there's the police married quarters. The central market is still in progress. Yeah. The piers, the rooftop of the piers haven't been done. No. Um, what, a, what a mess they did with those piers. It's just designed not progressing. Designed to face inwards, not designed to face the sea. Yeah, no, yeah. So, uh, the, uh, some of the piers have the, uh, the restaurants at the wrong place. PMQ is a success. Yeah, that's done. That. And these government uh, This one we still we, we have a problem with and we're still trying to change that. That's the, the church kind of to yeah, build a massive tower there. We kind of try to hold that, that back. Well, we, um, we're working very hard trying to convince government that it's not a good idea. No. And it's not just them that uh, they're going to build their high rises. Also, other people on the Glenili there are going to try to put high rises up. I just don't know what you're going to do at the junction just just um, uh, south of the uh, uh, the fringe club. I mean, yes. I mean, how is that going to work? Exactly. It already doesn't work. Yeah. Um, get choked in traffic. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense to. Uh, also, it's a lovely open area, isn't it? Behind the temple. Of course, and then yeah. Uh, where's the map here? This little cluster here, Shunkung Hoi Compound. Yeah. But you know the uh, the government central government offices is now done and it's going to open up and um, they're going to make it more public and uh, some of the fences are going to disappear and it's going to be uh, you can walk a kiosk here and a place to sit so it's going to be kind of a bit of a park yeah. and then of course the uh, the judicial offices are going to be there it's called Justice Place nice and then uh, the central police station Tycoon will be done PMQ is done Central Market I mean they have had a lot of issues there uh, where the plans were way too extravagant and then they realized they couldn't do it and so then they had to change the plans again so they had lots of delays and still um, I am confused by what they're doing they are going to turn it into from the drawings that I've seen it's more kind of like the the inside in IFC where uh, what's upstairs the big uh, the big shop um, the Wheelock own shop that is Joyce or what is upstairs in IFC? It's, um, it's not Joyce, it's another um, Yeah, but you know it's like a bit of a top brand where you yeah. have these glass panels and the, uh, the open air Lane and Lane Croft and then you can look up. Um, and that's what the area is going to look like. It's going to have an atrium inside, big windows. Um, 
and um, I, it's no longer going to be the market. There's hardly any stalls left. Yes. So I think once you're inside in the future, the experience of it, I'm not sure um, that you're going to have the experience that no. we had had with the market. It's not going to function as a market. Oasis, but it's Probably not going to be an oasis of that. Well, uh, maybe it's going to be an oasis, Commercial but I know uh, it yeah. it's going to be commercial. I can't see how this is I going to be a public what I space. Want to ask you, um, in front of the IFC, that built that um, motorway, right, with the tunnel. That's right. Yeah, the, 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 the central monster bypass. Now, where, how did that come? Because if you look at the plans, there's no motorway there. Um, the motorway is a bit of grey there. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> was it always part of the plans? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the uh, yeah. The, so the reclamation, the reclamation in Central and in Wan Chai, is all um, as part of the Central Wan Chai project, where they want to put the tunnel where you yeah. go in front of IFC in the tunnel, and then you come up at North Point. Yes. So, so it's basically for traffic to bypass Wan Chai. That would be good, right? That is good. Um, however, uh, it, it will not resolve the traffic congestion in Central and Wan Chai that we do have, right. because that has nothing to do with traffic that wants to bypass. The traffic congestion we have from Causeway Bay, Wan Chai, Central, Sheng Wan, is traffic that wants to enter Central, yeah. those areas, and you just, there is no space. So basically, well, you've got, you got these queues of cars that are trying to get in. And so that's where the real problem is. We, we have to make sure the, the vehicles don't want to go in. Understood. This brings me to something I'm very passionate about and have been quite vocal about over the years. Why can't we pedestrianize our streets? Why wasn't Soho pedestrianized 15 years ago? Hmm. And designing Hong Kong, I mean, yeah. You're the champions of this. If there's anyone who can answer this question, you know, why that lack of vision of not creating pedestrianized zones that would benefit the economy, would benefit the businesses, would benefit the environment, would allow us to design street furniture that is aesthetic and beautiful and functional, would benefit children, would benefit people, and would limit the amount of cars coming into an already overcrowded and congested makes sense whichever way you look at it with minimum resistance well it's not minimum resistance I mean there was always people objecting always but they're a minority not a majority anymore. but government doesn't and that's where the problem is the government doesn't know whether it's a minority they just don't have a way to be cage it and be confident about it so it tends to be that the complainant has the strongest voice in all of these things so so that, there is an issue there. The second issue is that we don't have an ability for management, whether it's management by government, so they lack resources, then which department is responsible to close up the streets, opening it, and be the warden that looks after the area, that knows everybody, that says, oh, maybe we should adjust the closing times or, and be flexible and learn and be, be responding to the situation constantly. We don't have a real mechanism for that. And we see the problem in Mongkok now, yes. where the solution for the absence of a warden is to let the traffic back in. So we were just touching on pedestrianization. And, um, mm. yeah. I mean, you know, if, if, we, if we can build a bridge that connects Hong Kong, Macau and China, surely we can solve pedestrianization. Ah. 
it's much easier to engineer things. Throw money at it. Say that. That's but for Hong Kong, it's always the case. Yeah. Great. If you want an engineering solution, no not a problem. You need the money. It's not a problem. You need the engineer. Not a problem. You need so architecture. It's not good enough. No, uh, because they don't spend time on making it look nice, but then they try to get better on it. But the real problem is that when it comes to management, so there's an issue. So Soho, for example. If there would be a Soho group and a Soho business association that would drive it, there would be a better chance it could get somewhere. So Lang Kwai Fong with Alan Zeman did that. Yeah. And it was, of course, then good that Alan Zeman is kind of the main sh uh, property owner and he's kind of driving it and he's staffing it and therefore he can get somewhere. But if you see how far he got, it's like, well, can we do more? Yes. You know, it's kind of a poor environment. Yes. So he's been able to push it up to there, but he can't push it to real good quality. But at least you can get something done. Yes. But in, in Mong Kok, if you, who's going to manage it? Do you need the home affairs department, the district office to work with the community, to set up an association? Transport department. And try to, yeah, and try to have a local solution that works for the circumstances. Because all the circumstances everywhere are different. You need local tailored solution yeah. that learns and understands and, yeah. and keeps changing. That ability, we just don't have in a way. It's a shame, you know, it's held Hong Kong back in my opinion. It is. Got a dozen departments overlooking a square foot. Each department's like, well, it's not my kind of thing, it's not my kind of thing, not my responsibility, it's your responsibility, no, it's his responsibility. And we, we kind of get stuck in, in quicksand. If the community takes responsibility and gets organized and starts asking, you'll get somewhere. Yes. You'll get somewhere. But it's got to be localized. Yeah. And you have to be willing to fight for your local solution and push it and push it and push it. And, but, and, be de and demonstrate that you also can overcome local objections. I, if somebody disagrees, yeah. that you resolve it and then put it to government, rather than leave the, 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 the objector to government to resolve. Correct. There's a question that we need the people to speak up more, to demonstrate more, to, to go on the streets and march, so to speak. A bit like what happened in... Uh, well, march and do. You know, um, yeah. We'll try to improve your own area and fight for local improvements. The government's as good as the people. People speak up, the government acts. Mm. How can we motivate people to speak up? Everyone's so busy, everyone's so distracted. But you know, with the umbrella revolution, that was beautiful. For me, that was some of my most beautiful moments in Hong Kong. As well as that big march we did in 2003 for Article 23. You know, my, my, the hairs on my arms were standing up. And, and I, I think the umbrella revolution was the most successful thing Hong Kong has done because it's motivated a whole younger generation of millennials. But I will never forget your yellow umbrella mm. amongst the sea of red umbrellas. Well, it's the sea of red flowers and banners and colors, yeah. Gray colors. Oh. And then someone, I don't know who, opened this yellow umbrella and stood there. Yeah, well, uh, that's, yeah, I did that. that yeah, was, you know, I was... That was, that was, that was so uh, powerful. It was silent, um, but effective. It was... It was um, you know, prior to that, we had government using tear gas, uh, yeah. uh, you know, kind of smoking out the kids from the street. I mean, and it was so not Hong Kong. I mean, that's not how Hong Kong had ever dealt with these issues. 
and it, it's you know kind of like with the CY long time of provoking and um, trying to push things to the next level basically to get to a situation that would allow um, kind of like the national authorities the central authorities to you know, kind of take greater control over Hong Kong so kind of the old mechanism of provocation and then to have excuses for taking more extreme measures and uh, and he hasn't stopped I mean it throughout his tenure that continued um, the, the provocations I mean then it became that he started to provoke this whole independence debate where there was one guy who'd written one book at Ling Nan and they had some kids that kind of like were kind of studying that as a concept and, and discussing it as a concept but it, he did he made he created a movement and again he by provoking it and that allowed then the central authorities to kind of respond to it all the time and gave them excuses to kind of change the way the one country two systems are being dealt with very naughty um, very unfortunate um, I guess very smart from the point of view of the of, of the antagonist on the uh, on the pro-establishment side who believe that it's it's just a good way of um, making sure that the central authorities have greater control over Hong Kong I mean there are people there that fear Hong Kong's independent voice not the independence but the independent voice it has very unfortunate um, and um, we now see a lot of disappointment uh, among your youth and a lot of kind of like rethink about what they're going to do next yeah. um, and, and, um, and in between generations yeah and it's crystallizing slowly um, but I think there's a lot of rethink going on in yes. town but that yellow umbrella amongst the sea of colors was one of the most beautiful subtle yet powerful demonstrations I've seen in our city small umbrella in my inside pocket came out of my suit yeah <laughs> Do you, have, do, you have, do you have photos of that? Yeah, no, no, I have, uh, yeah, I must have clips of it. I can't remember where I saw it. Social media, was it? Or uh, it did it make printed news as well? Uh, it went viral. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it went globally viral, Yeah. Uh, that image. It, as you said, it was very simple. I opened it up. Did anyone stop you? Or? No, I mean, everybody was, everybody was focusing on the, uh, on doing the toast. Yeah. I was at the back row. Uh, with the media right behind me, so although it was a very small umbrella, it looked very big because it was close to the camera. So, oh, so yeah, so it was a, and sort of most people didn't even recognize it, and I had it up for a few minutes, two maybe, um, and that was it. Right. Sort of was it, made the statement. I, I still have my yellow umbrella and I keep it. Yeah. Most cherished umbrella. It's the only umbrella I never lose. I've given it away to somebody who said they were going to do an exhibition. Ah, oh, um, get it back. But I don't know where it is, so Get it the original. Get it back, you want to keep that. It might yeah. have value in the future, oh. more value in the future. On that note, Paul, I uh, want to thank you for joining me for breakfast. Oh, thanks for serving breakfast. For having this chat. Yeah. And, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.